Hey, I'm Drew, and you're listening to the Citizen Coder Podcast. In this content-packed episode, I interview Simon Willison, co-creator of the Python Django web framework and a survivor of the first dot-com boom in the 90s. In this episode, we hash out the history of the internet, open source, storming castles, scraping your history, blogging, building startups, and so much more. Let's dive in. Hey, Simon. So why don't you go ahead and tell me how you got started with uh, programming? Sure. So, yeah. So I, I started programming in the mid-80s. Um, when I was a kid, I was, I was born in 1981, and we got a Commodore 64, and my father taught me to program the Commodore 64, and I later found out that he'd set it up. So I was sat on his left, and the How to Program book was on his right, and he was basically a page ahead of me in that book as he was showing me how things worked. Um, oh wow! So I got really so so as as a kid, I was playing around with Commodore sixty four and doing like screens with mazes on and all of that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And then later on, uh, like much much later, I got into web programming. So when I was a teenager, I started making websites in like the the mid that was probably the late nineties, um, and that was super exciting because you know I tinkered on the Commodore sixty four, but really you're the only person who gets to see what you've been doing. And the yeah. beauty of the web is you put up a web page and anyone in the world can see it. Okay, nobody does, but you can at least sort of like feel like you're building something that other people can use. So then I got very heavily into online gaming and started building, you know, before then I hadn't really had a reason to build websites. I was just tinkering. Um, but yeah. with online gaming, I could build websites for my online gaming clan. And then I got involved in running a, a Team Fortress Classic League in the UK. So I was building the website for the league where people could see which matches they were in and the results of the tournament and all of that sort of thing and sort of grew that into a news website about the game that I was playing and Mm. that got me my first job in technology and I ended up working in the first dot-com boom sort of 1999 to 2000 I was working for a online games company in London um, which lost like 35 million pounds and went out and didn't quite go out of business, but you know, it was very much part of the dot com crash at the time. After which the... I went off to university. That so that was a company called Gameplay.com. Gameplay.com. Um, yeah, they were selling online games. It was basically um like Amazon but for boxed retail games. So you could <laughs> you, you go to their website to buy games and they get posted to you. Um but oh, they nice. also had online game servers that they were running. Um mm. so if you want to play Half Life or Quake um, Gameplay's yeah. um, online game division, Wireplay. That was the bit I worked for. Um, ran all of those servers, and I that played was super a ton fun. Of, right. of Quake and Unreal. Yeah, Unreal Tournament was I, I, I know, amazing. Right. Yeah. So it was all of that kind of stuff. And Counter Strike was just coming mm-hmm. out at the time. And so yeah, that was super super fun. And um, and then when the dot com crash happened. I went to university. Like I was, I was at a point where I could take a few years off at university and wait for the industry to recover from that. Sure. Wow. That's crazy. Um, so you said Commodore 64 was your first computer. That's like my first, first love of computers. <laughs> right. And actually my, my main open source project these days is called Dataset, which is an homage to the Commodore 64 because that was what the disk drive was called. It was oh, the, the yeah. Commodore Dataset. It was. So, yeah. I completely forgotten that. That's crazy. <laughs> Did I lose you? Uh, no. Um, oh, so no, you're fine. Go ahead. Um, but yeah, so 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 webs. So when I started programming for real, I was mainly using I was doing HTML and PHP, 
Um, mm-hmm. And I was working with PHP uh, when I when I went to Gameplay.com. I was building out PHP sites and bits and pieces of Perl and that kind of thing. Um, but then the really sort of huge accelerant in my career was when I got an opportunity at university to take a year in industry. This is something that English universities do where you can sort of take a year off between your second and third year. You go mm-hmm. and work somewhere. And because you're a student, you can get student visas. So I was in the UK, but I managed to land a job in America at a local newspaper in Lawrence, Kansas. Oh, wow. A tiny little town um, because I, I'd been blogging and there was the, the guy who, 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 who um, and then their main engineer, a chap called Adrian Halavati, had a blog that I read. He advertised this job. I thought it would be an interesting thing to do for a year. So mm-hmm. I moved out to Kansas and spent a year working for this local newspaper where we built a content management system for a newspaper, which it turned out was Django, the Django open source web framework. We had yeah. no idea at the time. We thought we were building a content management system. But, um, wow. but short, sort of six months after I left the newspaper, after my year was up, they, the team, they managed to open source it. And that's been a project that's continued to grow ever since. I'd actually, um, when I was reading over your, your blog, I didn't realize that you were from the UK. And uh-huh. it, was, it wasn't until, you know, I started seeing pictures of castles. And I'm like, I wonder if he if he's from the U.S. or the U.K. I wasn't I couldn't tell. I wasn't sure. That's funny. Yeah. No, I've been out here since um, moved out in 2013. So I moved mm. to San Francisco and then I've been I'm still in the San Francisco Bay Area today. We moved down to Half Moon Bay last year. Oh, nice. How, how's San Francisco been? It's been pretty amazing. It's a it's a it's a fascinating city. Like it's it's a very one of the things I love about San Francisco is it's tiny. Like it's very it's it's only seven miles by seven miles, hmm, but it always finds new ways to surprise you. You know, I've lived lived in this area for what eight years, eight, eight or nine years now, and you're always finding new little aspects. A friend of mine calls San Francisco a video game city because <laughs> you know in video games you only have to go a block and you're in a new new area with new adventures, and San hmm. Francisco is exactly the same. Oh, I've never visited San Francisco. I need to put that on my list of places to go. It's super fun. When you do visit, the key thing to know is it's all about the neighborhoods. Downtown San Francisco is not where the fun is. That's not the fun bit. The fun bit is in, it's the Mission and the Castro and all of the different corners of the city, which all have their own very independent feelings. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. I've uh, I've spent some time in Chicago, but that's, yeah, that's... That's not the same. I mean, they do have areas where you go and, you know, you can go to different areas and, you know, first you're in in one and the next thing you know, you're in Chinatown, but it's, yeah. Right. It's I love Chicago. It's, 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 it's a, it's a tr- truly great American city. I'd love to spend more time exploring it. Yeah. I definitely would love to visit uh, San Francisco, but um, so you were, you were at the kind of the ground floor of Django. Um Yes. Yeah. And yeah, really what happened is um, Adrian and I had been using PHP for years and we were beginning to run up against the sort of the, 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 the limits of what you could productively do with PHP. And this was, mm. bear in mind, this was 2003. This was like PHP 4 era. The language yeah. has improved a huge amount since then. Oh, a ton. Yeah. But at the time, we were, we were trying to build these big applications and constantly sort of getting frustrated. And meanwhile, Python was getting really interesting. Like we were both very keen on Python as a programming language. The problem was that there weren't that many options for building web applications with it. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, okay, we need to build an abstraction layer 
So we, 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 want to, we want to build some websites in Python. Um, the main option at the time was Mod Python. There was an Apache module, which looked okay, but not many people were using it. And so we were worried that maybe we'd do everything in Mod Python and then it might turn out to like have problems that we hadn't anticipated and sure. then we'd be stuck. And so we said, okay, we'll build a very thin layer between our code and Mod Python, right? Just a little thin abstraction layer so that we can swap out Mod Python later on if something goes wrong. And that yeah. abstraction layer turned out to be a full web framework because you need templating and URL routing and like view functions and request and response objects and all of that kind of stuff, which we, we were building again, thinking it was just a content management system for a newspaper. Mm. But as it, as we solved more of these problems, it sort of turned into this, this, this coherent whole that could be applied to more <laughs> than just newspaper websites. And yeah, that, that, that's been the sort of Django ever since. Wow. So that's, I mean, I guess who's, who's been um, developing Django since, since then? Is so this... this is a wonderful story. So Django, it came out of this local newspaper in Kansas. Um, yeah. It was Adrian and, and Jacob Kaplan Moss who, who joined just as I was leaving the newspaper. They, yeah. um, they sort of uh, managed to get the thing, thing um, open sourced. And it's since, I feel like Django has been an amazing success story in terms of how to do these community-driven open source projects. Mm -hmm. now, in, in open source, you have projects like um, Kubernetes and these things where there's one giant company that backs it. And that model works great, um, but it's a very different style to these sort of purely community-driven things. So with Django, the newspaper eventually signed over ownership of the Django trademark and such like to a nonprofit, the Django Software Foundation. Oh, um, wow. And that nonprofit, the, the thing they did, which I think other projects should absolutely follow, is um, so quite a while ago, Adrian and Jacob had been the bene benevolent dictators for life of the Django project. They both resigned. <laughs> they said, you know what, this is, we do not think it is in the interest of the project for us to maintain that sort of that, 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 those leadership positions. Um, oh. So the community had to step up, right? You've, if, you're, if you've lost your leadership, how do you mm -hmm. continue to run the project? Um, right. And so the, the foundation owns the, the trademarks and, 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 and such like, but there's, it's, it's very much driven by volunteers who do the actual work. But the interesting thing they did um, quite a while ago is they realized that there's, there was unglamorous work in open source maintenance, right? You need to have people who are doing triage on the new bug reports and doing security releases and um, doing release management and just making sure everything keeps on ticking over, ticking over do, do code reviews, all of that sort of stuff. And so yeah. those within the Django community are now paid positions. There are people called the Django Fellows who are paid by the Django Software Foundation to mm. essentially keep the wheels turning. And I think this is absolutely brilliant. I had nothing to do with the creation of this system. Um, I've just watched, watched as it's, it's sure. worked amazingly it's well. Yeah. Right, so Django has reliable releases. And if there's a security problem, somebody's going to fix it. And new bugs are triaged and code is reviewed. And I think it's it's wonderful. Like one of the things I'm interested in doing is helping make that model work for other projects. Like mm -hmm. I would love it if that fellow that sort of paid fellow model became something that other community driven projects were doing as well. Because it's quite it's still quite rare, which is surprising to me since it's worked so so well in the case of Django. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like that's needed really because um these open source projects are very, very large, most of them now. Right. And then, um, you know, it's, it's like I said, this work is, it's hard work, right? Just mm -hmm. showing up every day and looking at the new bug reports and triaging things and code reviewing and all of that. This is, it's difficult to keep volunteers doing that over the long term. Like people will, 
that people will volunteer for a little bit, but then sure. life happens and other priorities happen and so forth. Um, so yeah, so I'm actually now, um, as of a few months ago, I'm on the board of the Python Software Foundation. I got um, elected mm -hmm. as a board member. One of the things I've, I, I'd like to explore there is, is there a role that that foundation could take in helping smaller projects maybe dip their toes into this world of, of, of paid fellowship and paid maintainers? Yeah, that would be that would be super interesting. I feel like they, you, I mean, you might be right. They might be sort of uniquely positioned to kind of advance uh, on that. It's interesting, right? Because the challenges become very operational, right? How do you make payroll? How do you think about benefits or paying people other countries? These are all things where you, you kind of need an accountant. And actually, the Django mm -hmm. Software Foundation has an accountant that they, they work with very closely to help manage this kind of stuff. Um, but if every open source project had to hire an accountant, that feels like that would be <laughs> not necessarily yeah. the ideal use of use of resources. Sure. It's I mean, it's it's kind of basically a business at that point. Exactly. And it, well, it's even worse than that. It's a nonprofit and nonprofits mm. are businesses with extra rules. You know, yeah. running a nonprofit is is not a simpler thing than running a for profit entity by any by mm. any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, that's that's very true. I've worked at some nonprofits, um, never run one, but. Um, I can't imagine the red tape. Yeah, it's 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 complicated, definitely. Mm. Yeah. So the other thing I didn't tell you is, uh, if if there's dead silence, don't worry about it. I'll just edit it out later. I f yeah, I figured there'd be an edit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. So yeah, so you've so you're there at the uh, the founding of the internet. And then... <laughs> just the, the 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 Django piece of the internet. Um, well, and I was I was very early in blogging. I started a blog in two thousand and one when mm -hmm. starting a blog was sort of a new and exciting thing to do. Yeah, and now it's twenty years early. later, and I'm still blogging. Um, I took mm. I took a break of a few years when I, I was running a startup and didn't have time to to do the blog thing. But yeah. I feel like blogging's interesting, and it it feels like it should be making a bit of a comeback right now. You know, especially with um like the, the, the things that are happening with Twitter and Facebook and so forth. Um, yeah. It feels like people are beginning to wake up to the fact that having your own little corner of the internet where you can publish things is, mm -hmm. is, is it's still a, it's a useful thing to do. It's also funny that um, when I started blogging, it, one of the tricks about blogging back in sort of 2001, 2002, is that anything you wrote would show up on the front page of search engines instantly because bloggers linked to each other and there was the frequency of updates. It was like the ultimate SEO hack was having a blog. That mm -hmm. stopped working for, for a while. I think it started working again. I'm noticing that when I write about something, within a few weeks, it starts attracting major like search engine traffic, part, partly because nobody oh. else is blogging, right? It's, um, if, if you're blogging about a topic, you're probably one of just a few people who are, who are writing about that thing. That's really kind of interesting. That. that is, yeah. that's super interesting. Yeah, I, I do a little bit of blogging, um, mostly like, you know, learning to code stuff or, you know, if I've right. run across anything. Um, but yeah, it's it's weird what, what kind of gets traction. And I think you're right. Like there's not, you know, every everybody on Twitter says that the one thing you should do is blog. But I don't right. think a lot of people are taking the time to sit down and kind of organize their thoughts and write something. Right. So I've got all sorts of opinions about this. Um, so I'm actually running four blogs, three blogs. It depends on what you count as a blog. Um, <laughs> but the most, so 
I've got my main blog, simonwillison.net, which I've been running for 20 years. But um, a couple of years ago, I started a thing called um, for TIL, Today I Learns, and that's at yeah. um, til.simonwillison.net. And the TIL format is, I think this is the answer to people who, who, who want to start blogging, but they're having trouble like bringing up the courage to do it. Um, mm. Because when you write a TIL, the whole point is you learn something today and you just write about the thing that you learned. So the, bar like, whereas with, of often when I'm writing on my main blog, I feel like I've got to say something new. You know, I've got to, there's got to be some flash of insight and then I have to explain it beautifully and put something out there onto the internet that's never been discussed before. With <laughs> TILs, that's not the case at all, right? I just yeah. figured out how to do a for loop in Bash, write it up, right? It's mm. three sentences and a code block and you're done. And that's valuable, right? That is, that's still useful. If somebody searches for how to do a for loop in Bash later on, they might stumble across that. Um, mm. But also I like it as, as I've been, as, as, as someone who's been doing this stuff for 20 years, I think it's important to show people that I can still learn to do a for loop in Bash and celebrate that. You know, yeah. just because you've been around for two decades doesn't mean that you're not learning new, very basic things every single day. So I like it as almost a, a sort of matter principle to say, hey, if you just figured out this very basic thing that everyone else figured out already, still celebrate that. You know, it's okay to write about it. It's okay to say, hey, look, I just figured out how to do X. Um, so yeah, so, so if, if, if anyone does want to start blogging, I think that specific format saying, here's the thing I learned today, is it's such a great entry into that space. Because yeah, all of that pressure to be unique and interesting is gone. Right? You just have to document what is the thing that you figured out. Few sentences, a little bit of code, and 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 then move on to the next thing. Yeah, I actually agree with that. I think that maybe part of the barrier to blogging is is that, like I said, people are kind of thinking like long form, and it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be long form. It could be it could be Twitter size. You know, if you just learn something, you just post a little tiny blurb about it. Right. And so my, also, my main blog, I've got a, another thing. I call, I call them blog marks um, for hmm. blog bookmarks. I think it's a word I invented in 2004 I like and it. just stuck with. Nobody else uses it. But, um, but yeah, they're just, it's, it's, it's a link blog, right? It's here's a link to something I just read and one sentence where I talk about that thing. And again, that's a really nice format. You know, it's, it's basically publishing your bookmarks, um, but it's super low effort. You know, it's, that really is effectively tweet-sized content. Mm -hmm. um, but the really fun thing is that you can do things, like I tag my blog marks, and this means that I can go up and look at everything I've ever written about content moderation, and it'll go back to like 2009 and be a bunch of different things. So over time, these little tiny like tweet-sized snippets, they add up to something kind of meaningful. I think I've got probably like 7,000 of them. Let's have a look. Yeah. Um, you do like 6,400 a... I've, mm. I've pu published wow. since, um, since 2003. Mm. And yeah, that adds up to, it kind of indirectly tells the story of my interests over the past 20 years. Um, so, you know, the best, the best time to start blogging was 20 years ago, but the second best time <laughs> is to, to start is today. <laughs> yeah, 20 years ago, man. I think I probably, well, I didn't blog 20 years ago. I did make some attempts at writing fiction but i'm sure they've disappeared by now <laughs> wow that's uh, ambitious yeah oh, i'll tell you the other thing that i like um you can cheat like mm. when i so i restarted my blog in 2017 after mm -hmm. this sort of six-year hiatus and now i had a six-year gap 
But I had been writing online just in other places, like I'd been addicted to Quora for a while, writing answers on Quora. And there were a few other sites that I'd been writing on. So yeah. I imported all of that data. So now I've got, I've backfilled my blog for six years with stuff that I'd written on Quora and Ask Metafilter in places. And oh, wow. I think that's legit. Like if I was starting a new blog today, I think it would be completely reasonable to, to backpopulate it the last 10 years worth of tweets and bookmarks and things I'd saved on Pinterest and so forth. Because it's your content, right? There's, yeah. There are no rules saying that you can't backdate, that you, you can't right, import right. content you've written elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing saying you can't do it. That's uh, that's that's a great idea. So you have to use a script or something to, to scrape that right. off? Or? Yeah, I wrote a bunch of little Python scripts to scrape various different websites. And, and uh, all of the stuff I do is it's open source in that it's in a GitHub repo somewhere. You can go and look at it. Um, nice. But yeah, that was that was really satisfying. And I'm, uh, I haven't imported my tweets yet, but I'm thinking I should probably be archiving my tweets on my blog as well. It feels like a sensible thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if you're not one of those people that goes through and deletes your tweets. <laughs> Definitely not. I'm. I'm. Oh, I've got forty-one thousand tweets. Crikey, that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm up to that yet. I think I was, I'm somewhere around the. I don't even know if I'm like in the ten thousand. The other day, there was an article about Twitter, a, a leak from a Twitter internal meeting where they talked about heavy tweeters. They said that uh -huh. Twitter is worried that some of their heavy tweeters are leaving, and a bunch <laughs> of people I know were like, "Okay, that sounds." bad am i a heavy tweeter the definition of heavy tweeter was i think three tweets a week so oh, everyone i know is, a, is a everyone's tweeter. a heavy tweeter yeah yep that's funny i do at least i do at least uh three a week uh, at least there you go you're a heavy tweeter that's uh, that, that's 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 how you're categorized now <laughs> i probably do a lot more than that i think i'm up to about um about 9100 at the moment mm -hmm. uh, i'm not i'm not super tweeter but uh, I, I came kind of late to Twitter. I uh, I really just started using it um, because I found out about the whole 100 days of code thing. Oh, and, yeah. And figured that would be a good way to kind of keep me motivated while I was learning. And, yeah, it, it definitely has. You know, I've, I've done a, or made attempts at a few rounds over the years. But, um, but yeah, it, that's that's been kind of kind of interesting. I think that the thing I love about Twitter is that when you start looking, you can find the interesting niches and it's just, it's mm -hmm. just a giant collection of interesting niches. I love Australian wildlife conservation. And it turns out oh, once wow. you find somebody on Twitter who talks about Australian wildlife conservation, they're talking to a bunch of other people. And now you've got a whole, mm -hmm. a little collection of people who every, every now and then you'll log on and there'll be news about Tasmanian devils or something. And that's yeah, great. Right? That's, that's awesome. super, super fun. And there, there's one cool thing you can you can kind of do now is you can add people to lists, and so if they mm. talk about certain things, you can actually collect them in a list, and then yes, if you if I, you're I in a mood, that. yeah, I was gonna say if so, you're in, in a if you're in a mood to to see a certain type of content, you can just go to your list and and check it out. So one of my weird Twitter hobbies is I huh. love behind the scenes content about animated movies. So oh, cool. like, um, I love the movie into the spider verse that came out a few years ago. Uh -huh. um, yeah. There was uh, the Mitchells versus the machines uh, a couple of years ago. And it turns out the people who work on these movies are on Twitter and they tweet about their work and they will tweet things like, here's a reference shot. So I shot this video of me eating a hamburger and then I animated this character eating a hamburger <laughs> based on that. And they'll put the two next to each other. And, 
I, it's it's amazing, right? It's super, or they have concept art and background art and stories about the sound design and so on. Mm-hmm. So for Spider-Verse, I started a Twitter thread where I, I linked to, here's one of the animators talking about how they animated the scene. And then I created a Twitter list of all of the animators on that movie that I could find and checked on that every few days to see what they were up to and added new things they were doing to that thread. And the thread ended up running for, I think, 13 months I was adding to this thread. Mm. It ended up being hundreds and hundreds of tweets long, just with all of this background information on Spider-Verse and all of this art and so forth. Um, I did the same thing for the Mitchells versus the Machines. And then the director of the Mitchells versus the Machines started liking my tweets. And I'm oh, like, no. this is amazing. This is like the most exciting thing ever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I, I love that. I love that there are these communities on there who are super vibrant and interesting. And I don't know anything about animation, right? Sure. I, I, I like watching the movies, mm-hmm. but having that little insight into these, these other specialities is it's, it's wonderful. And then being able to participate just a little bit through curation, through just building that thread and saying, look, here's all of the, here is all of this information brought together in one place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I actually uh, I kind of like animation. I I do watch animated movies. I hadn't really considered a whole lot about what goes on behind the scenes, but um, that would be that would definitely be something to kind of dig into and take a look at. I mean, I, especially these days, I think we've hit the point now where there is nothing you can imagine that somebody couldn't animate, right? Like um, mm-hmm. with the, the the state of the art in in three. Like I think we hit that point a few years ago. So. Animation feels to me like the purest form of storytelling. There is no story that can't be told in mm-hmm. an anime uh, with with a, with a sufficiently talented team of animators. Um, and it's it's so it's it's so you know I'm fascinated by screenwriting and how you construct plots and stories and characters and so forth. And animation is just such a pure way, such a pure implementation of those ideals. Um, it's also funny that the. Uh, the, the Oscars, the, the big film awards have always been quite sniffy about animated movies. Like no animated movie has ever won Best Picture. Yeah. Um, and they actually created a separate category, mainly so they could get that animation stuff out of there. Meanwhile, animators are pointing out that, hey, Marvel movies are about 70% animation now, right? Mm-hmm. All of the, yeah. the, the yeah, visual they... effects that go into that. You're basically, the animators are making most of your movie anyway. So you, you kind of need to give us a bit more respect than we're getting. They really are, actually, yeah. Yeah, I, I, the last, I think the last uh, bit of an of a Marvel movie I watched was, um, oh, I think it was an Iron Man movie, or no, actually it was the one of the Avengers films. I'm assuming you're you're pretty familiar with the uh, Marvel films. I'm pretty well. I'm pretty well pretty caught well. up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're all they're heavy, heavy animation. It's, and it's it's a beautiful not... art form. Like people complain oh, yes. about that. I'm like, no, look at the artistry look at the talent that is going into building these animated sequences mm-hmm. um and now they're putting it into i mean they're putting it into everything because they can they can use that and create things you know that they couldn't before and it's probably cheaper than blowing up something you know <laughs> not to mention <laughs> once, once you get to the size of a helicarrier i think that's definitely true yeah 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 for sure uh that's funny um, I wanted to ask you about open source. Okay, so you said um, you've, you've done a lot of open source, and we were talking about animation. So are you familiar with Blender? Have you um, had any involvement? With, I've with, uh, tinkered a tiny bit with Blender. Um, there's that amazing, the, the famous donut tutorial, right? There's that tutorial which shows you how to build a donut with, with frosting on, which yeah. gets updated every few years, the latest version of Blender. I've worked through the first 
half hour of that tutorial. I have not yet rendered my donut. Um, oh my god, you're missing out. But it's <laughs> Blender's amazing, like because it's been it, it, it's 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 about twenty years old now. And I remember yeah. years and years ago, it kind of sucked, right? It, it was, was a bit terrible. of a <clears throat> right. And so I stopped paying attention to it. And then ten years go past, and now it doesn't suck, right? The inter- it's it's yeah. cutting interfaces like cutting edge and project right mm-hmm. which is yeah. pretty extraordinary for something with that level of user interface polish to be yeah. to be run run in that way i think it's I, i'd love to learn more about how that project works because they've they've done nobody thought open source could do that could produce an actual like world oh. world-class user interface on top of all of the underlying technology yeah I, and i don't know like much about their inner workings but um i've i've used it a little bit here and there over the years and kind of watched the uh development of it and you know, it was uh, it was owned by a company, and then uh, I want to say the founder. He was I don't know if he was one of the employees, but they got a bunch of people together and pulled their money, and I think they bought it for like a hundred thousand dollars. Amazing! Well, that's and the bargain of the century. Yeah, yeah, for real. Because I mean, wow. I mean, now it's it's at the level where you know you could. You know, they could use it in Marvel films if they wanted to. Like that's that's kind of the the progress it's made over the years. It's just it's interesting. I've been um I I've been playing around with TikTok recently and one of the genres of video on TikTok is people who've done their own special effects sequences using Blender blended oh. in with, with videos they've taken. So it's like them being chased by a by a by an X Wing and stuff. It's it's really cool. And yeah, oh no, are, that's awesome. Like you you can do this kind of stuff on your own laptop now. And and some of the results are extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And, and now I need to go look at some TikTok videos. That's uh, the crazy. It's TikTok. <laughs> it's kind of like Twitter in the the, the niches on TikTok are fast. Like the the people who do their own home special effects movies niche. That, mm-hmm. Those are really interesting. But it's kind of, you have to get lucky with the algorithm. It has to show you one which you then watch, and then it's like oh, okay, you like that, and start. Show. So you have to train it quite aggressively yeah. to make sure that it shows you the good stuff. That that's that's kind of the downside. I guess the the good side is that you know most of that stuff winds up on YouTube. Yep. Yeah, and um, I, I there are Twitter accounts I follow that are mainly just reposting TikToks as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of that going on. Um, I don't think that uh, YouTube intended it that way, but it's yeah, it's basically their their short form has become. Uh, essentially TikTok uh, reposts. Interesting. I wonder if that's because TikTok has the better like um, video editing tools. I haven't really looked into mm. those yet, but I know that it's been really investing heavily in, in making it so you can create these amazing videos on your on your phone. That's that's kind of interesting. I, I'm not even sure, but but yeah, that would be that would be interesting to to find out. Um, let's see. So you created a where was it? You wrote a a piece of JavaScript. That's oh, this author. is a long time ago. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, what, I, I, was that two thousand four? This says two thousand three. Two thousand three, crikey! Yeah, yeah, this was get elements by selector. It was and a little I've JavaScript seen it, function. So, yeah, like right. I've um, done a little JavaScript, not much, but I've done a little bit, and I've used that. So, yeah, and it was, it was, yeah, it was. Uh, the idea was. How about if there's a JavaScript function that you give it a CSS selector and it returns elements? Of course, this is built into browsers these days, right? It's document dot query selector all does exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, back in 2003, it was a new idea, and um, that ended up 
the code that I wrote was actually part of the, the first release of jQuery used some of my code. They very quickly rewrote it to be better. But, um, but yeah, so, so it, it was, so I had code in, in, in jQuery right at the very start. Um, and so, yeah, that was, uh, that was really fun. You know, I've, I've been, mm. I've been, most of my career has been spent doing backend development with Python, but I try and keep my, my foot in the JavaScript world. Although it gets got, the last 10 years have got increasingly difficult because of Webpack and oh, NPM man. and React and all of those things. You have, if you're not working yeah. with JavaScript every single day, you right, sort of blink right. and you're, and you're behind and now there are new tricks that you have to learn. Yeah. I'm, try, I'm trying to, to reskill that at the moment. You're trying to what? Sorry. I'm trying to get back into that at the moment. I want to do more mm. front end, like user interface stuff. Oh, um, I see. Yeah. There's definitely a lot to, uh, to dip your toes in there. Um, oh yeah. I've, I've almost stopped trying because there's so much. Um, I, I've, I've kind of dabbled a little bit with react and, and react native, I kind of like the mobile stuff better. I'm, I'm more of a fan of building for phones. I'm uh, totally that way. Yeah. It's like I, I spend about nine hours a day on my phone, according to that screen time report. So I'm definitely using <laughs> my fo- phone for, for the web more than, I'm, more than I'm using my laptop. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of the trend too. I think more people are, more people are apt to use their, their phones for internet. I know I do personally use it a ton for that. Um, Mainly when I'm on my computer, it's because I'm either learning something or, or you know, um, programming. But yeah, if I'm if I'm not doing that, I'm basically on the phone. Um, yeah. So, uh, sorry. Let's see. I, you had a couple other things too. I was super interested. In. I saw a picture of you, or I, I don't know if it was of you. There was a picture of a castle. Yes. I love absolutely love castles. So this is an exciting thing about living in the UK is that the UK has castles. Right. And, um, that's UK the one has thing I history. Most in America <laughs> is that we, America America is not great for castles. Um, no, there are a few, but but it, not not many. So yeah, um, there's this organisation in the UK called the Landmark Trust, and mm. they are a non-profit group that they they buy up historic buildings like castles and stately homes and so forth, and then they restore them and they turn them into vacation rentals. So it's basically Airbnb for historic buildings. And they've been doing oh, this since wow. the 1970s. Um, and they've got like over a hundred buildings around the UK, which you can rent. Um, and the fascinating thing about them is that some of these like their manor houses or my favorite one was, yeah, there's a, 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 a Napoleonic sea fortress in the Channel Islands, which has huh. like a bedroom that was a Nazi machine gun nest because the Nazis took it over during the second world war. And there's like a portcullis and, and all sorts of things like that. But the crazy thing about them is that some of these will sleep a dozen people and they cost like $2,000 a week, but 2000 divided by 12 people divided by like five nights, that's youth hostel prices. Like if you can get a group of friends together, these things aren't expensive. These are, it's a really cheap, cheap, cheap place to go. Wow. So yeah, so we got, we, we had a group of friends in, in, in the UK and we formed this thing called Dev Fort slash Dev slash fort it's a unix unix joke um Mm. and we would rent a fort for a week and we'd go and hack on a project together so it's basically like a week-long hackathon in a fortress um for for a dozen people and we did this quite a few times and um we eventually we realized like we were trying to we thought we were going to build startups and stuff and no it's not 
that that takes the fun out of it. Like like build build fun like fun hacks and hang out together, but don't try and don't try to build something real. <laughs> exactly. Like 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 suddenly it's it's not as not I as mean, fun as it used to be. But that has kind of like a secret society feel to it, you know? Like go there and build a startup in a fortress. It has a little bit. But the um I mean the the big rule we ended up with is don't build anything with user accounts because the moment you've got user accounts, you get users and then the users have expectations. They're like, Hey, you need to keep this thing working. I'm, I'm committed yeah. now. Like so I'm the latest projects thing. they did, right. And the latest projects they did were thing, they did a wonder one called space log, which was, um, this was one I didn't go on, but it was the Apollo 14, the Apollo 13 transcripts from NASA turned into a sort of Twitter style interface. So you could, mm see you could run through the timeline and see exactly what happened based on the radio transmissions and so forth but nobody could log in right it's just a static website where you can do this and that's the perfect project for this kind of thing because mm. you get all of the fun you build something cool that people can play with but you're not ending up with like angry users who you're responsible for like helping them recover their accounts when they forget their password and all of that kind of thing yeah yeah huh um so you traveled around the world tell me about that well, this was, um, so 2010, uh, I was working at the Guardian newspaper. So, you know, this was the second newspaper I'd worked for. I worked for this newspaper in, in Kansas building what became Django. Right. And at the Guardian, I was doing data journalism, which has been a theme in my career since then. And I think it's the most exciting thing you can do as a programmer. It's when you work with a news organization and you write code to find stories. So you're helping mm -hmm. journalists dig through databases and you're helping build interactives that people online can use to further explore and understand the world. And the reason I love it so much is that it's like anything, that there's so much interesting different topics that you can explore, but it's all very tight deadlines. You know, if, you, mm -hmm. if it takes you two months to build a thing, for a news story, there was no point. The news cycle has moved on. Right. So you get the sort of adrenaline of quickly turning around projects combined with the raw interest of, of and the, the possibility to actually have an impact on the world through the work that you're doing. Right. Um, and so at The Guardian, the biggest project I did was around MPs' expenses. Um, so we have members of parliament in the UK and they can file expense claims. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, what had happened is our MPs were the lowest paid in all of Europe Huh. Um, but it didn't. But the way they got around that is, um, you'd sign up an MP on the first day. Somebody would take to the shoulder and go, "Hey, here's how we fiddle our expenses to to make up for the low salaries." Uh, um, and so uh, they were doing things like claiming on second homes in their constituencies that they weren't really using, or like just the, the, the amount of stuff they were able to claim on was 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 kind of crazy. That is not. And there was a Freedom of Information Act um, um, charge to try and get hold of these expense reports which were initially linked to, they were leaked to another newspaper who got a whole bunch of stories out of it. But then when the documents came out, we, we were then in a race with everyone else to try and find the best stories in these pile of like 20,000 dodgy scanned PDFs of expense forms. So I built <laughs> a crowdsourcing tool. The idea was you go on our website, you type in your postcode, yeah. you say, okay, this is your MP, here's a random page of their expenses. Does it look like there's anything shady going on on, on this page? Oh, and, um, and so we got thousands of our readers to help us dig through 20,000 pages of documents and, and try and figure out which, which MPs were fiddling their expenses. And that was super fun. You know, that was a, a really, no. that was actually using, uh, using all sorts of sort of um, skills and ideas I'd picked up in previous projects. Um, that, that is an insane amount of documents. Oh yeah. It was, it, it was, it was a, really interesting project and i feel like it was quite influential in sort of showing 
what you can do with crowds, the intersection of crowdsourcing and, um, and, and, and news reporting, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I'd been at The Guardian um, and then my wife and I, we, we got married in 2010 and we decided that we would quit our jobs and go traveling on a honeymoon for as long as we possibly could. Like we were, we, we had laptops. We figured we could, we could do like freelance contracts and things. Doesn't really matter where we are. Let's see how far around the world we can get. Um, and so we gave up, gave up our apartments. Um, we tra- tried to travel over land. We went over to France. We traveled down to, to Morocco in, in Africa. Um, and it was, it was super exciting. But it turns out traveling and working for clients at the same time is kind of difficult because, you know, you've got two hours in an internet cafe. Did they reply to your last email with the que- uh, answering the question you asked? If they didn't, what are you going to do? You know, you, mm-hmm. you, 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 you're kind of reliant on them to be responsive, which is a bit unfair on them. You know, it's not their fault that you're, that you're constantly traveling and, and not, not reliably available. Sure. Um, so then we started, we had some ideas for like, things that we wanted to build ourselves um and we i think we actually we got food poisoning in morocco in in marrakesh um oh, man. and we so we needed to to stay in one place for a few weeks to to, to make to to, to yeah. get better yeah, yeah yeah um and so we had the uh, it, was, it was in casablanca rather in morocco and we had this idea and said, okay, we're stuck in one place for two weeks. Let's build this thing. And the idea was a website where you can see which conferences your friends are going to, because mm. we liked going to conferences and we'd sometimes miss out on them. And, you know, yeah. if we knew that our friends were speaking at like RailsConf or whatever, that would be super exciting. And we could, we could then, then find out about the conferences that way. Right. So we built this thing and we built it on top of Twitter. The idea was signing with Twitter. We'll look at who you follow on Twitter and say, hey, these people are going to these conferences. And also we could seed it with speakers. We could say, okay, I know that this conference is happening and these 20 people on Twitter are speaking. So mm-hmm. even though they don't have an account on our website, we can still list their Twitter names. And then if anyone signs in who follows them, they will get that recommendation. So it kind of solves that cold start problem where you launch a new social service and no one's using it. So there's no information. So there's no point in anyone signing up. <laughs> um, yeah. So we launched this on our honeymoon. Um, Oh, wow. And it it turns out Twitter's viral, you know, especially people who are speak at speak at conferences have lots of followers. So they're right. all tweeting about it saying, hey, look, look at this new thing. So it took off a lot. Well, we didn't expect it would take off at all. We thought our friends would use it and that would be about it. Sure. Um, so we ended up thinking, OK, well, maybe this is a startup. Like maybe this is an opportunity to actually start a company because a lot of people want to do a startup. So they start the company and then try and find the idea. Find the idea. And maybe two yeah. years later. They, they still haven't got there. Right. Um, if you found the idea already, you, you can skip all of that bit. Um, yeah, yeah. So we applied to um, so we applied to the Y Combinator startup accelerator. Actually, from I think we were in Luxor in in, in Egypt, and we we shot this little video where we had like a six thousand year old temple in the background, which we didn't mention. We just had it as a little bit of sort of background background color. Um, huh. And we got in, we got accepted to Y Combinator. And so our, three months into our honeymoon, we found ourselves moving to Mountain View in California for this three month long, like, like startup boot camp thing. Oh. Um, but we couldn't tell our friends because part of the thing with Y Combinator is announcing that you are a Y Combinator company is, is a news event, right? So you want to keep right. that in your pocket and then yeah, yeah. say, hey, this is our big launch. Mm-hmm. And so... We kind of had to be a bit sly about it. We're like, oh, no, Mountain View's lovely this kind of year. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so we did Y Combinator um, 
we raised a bunch of money. We raised a very large seed round, moved back to London, and then we, we, hired, a, we, we hired people in London and ended up running this company for three years before we, um, we, we, we were acquired by Eventbrite, the, the ticketing company. And that's how I ended up in San Francisco. Um, Eventbrite, based in San Francisco, they bought our London-based company and they mm. moved myself and the, and, the, and the rest of the team out. So, oh. so there was a huge amount of logistics and visas and all of that kind of stuff. But the end sure. result is that, yeah, we, 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 were, we, we, we found ourselves living in, in San Francisco, work, working, working, in, working in San Francisco tech, which is fascinating and a, a very exciting way for that story to end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I haven't gone through and read your, the full story, I guess, your wife wrote, looks like. Yes, Natalie wrote up a, a, a very comprehensive sort of um, telling of, of, of how this all worked out. Yeah, I definitely need to. I need to go through and read that because that that looks really interesting. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your like your current project? Right. So, so I was at Eventbrite for I think six, seven years, um, and I enjoyed it. You know, I wouldn't have stuck around for seven years if I didn't. But I was always felt like I'd become detached from this idea of data journalism. Like the stuff that I most enjoyed in my career were the times when I was working when, in news organizations doing, doing, mm -hmm. doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I found out about this. Uh, there's a fellowship program at Stanford University called the JSK Journalism Fellowship. And mm. basically, it's, um, they, they take um, like about 18 journalists a year and they pay you to come and be present at Stanford. So you're on campus, hanging out with the other fellows, you're interacting with the Stanford like students and other professors, you can take lectures and courses, um, and you have to be working on a project that is beneficial to, to the overall sort of news industry in some way. Mm -hmm. And it turns out it wasn't exclusively for journalists. Like I was, I'm enough of a journalist and I'd worked in those environments and the stuff I was doing was relevant to news that I, I could qualify as sort of the, the slightly odd one out in that group. So I, I got accepted onto this fellowship and I got to spend effectively a full year at Stanford being paid to work on what I thought was most interesting, which mm. on the one hand is amazing. Yeah. And on the other hand, it completely ruined me because now I can't go back. You know, the, the fellowship <laughs> ended nearly, it ended nearly three years ago and I haven't really held down a full-time job since then because I just want to keep on working on the, on the projects that I was working on then. Sure. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had a, a successful startup exit, so I, I don't have an infinite runway, but I can afford to not have a job for a while. Right. Um, but, yeah, so the project I was working on there was um, it's, it's this project called Dataset. And basically it's um, open source tools for initially for data journalism. But actually, it turns out people other than journalists also need to analyze data and find stories in it. So right. the core um, piece of software is a. Python web application that gives you an interface on top of a database. So you can load data of any shape and size you like into an SQLite database, run my software, and you get a full, uh, an interface that lets you browse it and search it and sort and filter and also run um, your own SQL queries directly against it. So you can basically like do anything that you want with that data and then export the data back out again as CSV or as JSON or install plugins that let, let you get it out in, in other formats like iCal and Atom feeds and so forth. Um, yeah, so the, the initial idea was make it really easy to explore the data and also make it easy to publish that data online. Like there's 
this is an obvious next step is how do I put this live so other people can see it? And yeah. so a lot of the work I've put into data set has been about making it as easy as possible to take data and then turn it into a website that other people can use. So it's got oh. um, mechanisms for publishing to Heroku and Google Cloud Run and Vercel and Fly.io, where you type a command on your community, you say data set, publish Heroku, myfile.db, hit enter, and it will do whatever needs to be done to deploy a new application online with your database baked into it. Um, ah. So that was the original idea, to make it easy to explore data and make it easy to publish data. Yeah. And then I realized, okay, so now I'm, I'm doing it all against SQLite databases because um, like MySQL and Postgres are great, but you have to run a server and learn how to run a server and set up usernames and passwords and all of that kind of thing. Right. And SQLite database is a file. So if you can create a file on your computer, you can create a new database, which is very it's, it's it's liberating it means that i on, a, on an average day i'll create a dozen databases and then delete half of them because who cares <laughs> it's just a file right yeah so yeah. but the problem is i'm building a tool which if you've got your data in a sqlite database now you can explore it and publish it how do you get your data into a sqlite database so i started building more tools i built tools that can take a csv file and put it in sqlite or can take a um like your an export of your github data and load that in or your twitter history or all sorts of different bits and pieces. I've got like dozens of these little sort of standalone tools which can take data from something and slap it into SQLite. And then yeah. once it's in SQLite, you can use data set to, to explore it and visualize it and so forth. Um, mm. But over what, what's ended up happening is I'm now responsible for 185 projects, I think, because wow. these things just keep on multiplying. Like I'm like, oh, iCal feeds are interesting. I should do a plugin that can produce an iCal feed. Um, <laughs> So uh, yeah, you're uh, writing all the plugins for this thing too? Not, thankfully, not all of them, most of them. I think I've written 90% of the plugins. Um, the plugin directory just hit 102. There's 102 plugins, and I wrote 93 of them. Wow. Like. So that's not all me. Um, but that's, that, but that, the plugin thing's really interesting as well, because it means... There are no bad ideas for plugins. Like when you're building a piece of software, you've got to be a very strict editor, right? You have to be, you, you, you think of an idea and you think, okay, I could build that, but now I'll have to maintain it forever. And what if it's got design flaws or security holes? You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons not to add random features to your main project. If yeah. you've got plugins, that doesn't, you can, uh, I've got an idea for a plugin. I can write it. The absolute worst is that it's a bad plugin and then people shouldn't use it, but it doesn't harm right. the integrity of, of that core of the project. So yeah. actually, um, a couple of years ago, somebody was hassling me about GraphQL and how GraphQL was the future of APIs. And I was, I was like, I don't think so. I think it's rubbish. So I built a <laughs> plugin for dataset. I bet to, to win an argument, I built a plugin for dataset that added GraphQL support to demonstrate <laughs> GraphQL is a terrible idea. And it backfired because I came out the other and thinking, wow, this is actually really cool. So it's now one of my favorite plugins <laughs> is the GraphQL plugin that I built out of spite to demonstrate that GraphQL was a waste of time. Um, but yeah, like I was never going to build GraphQL support for Dataset Core, especially when I didn't believe in GraphQL. But I can, sure. as a, like, a few days of experimental sort of side project, it works really well. So I'm, I'm and really, my, this is my sort of really ambitious goal for Dataset is I like comparing it to WordPress, right? Where WordPress yeah. is a CMS, it's a very, it's a perfectly decent core CMS 
And it's got 10,000 plugins that mean it can do anything. Like there is nothing in publishing that there is not a WordPress plugin for. And as right. a result, WordPress runs something like 25% of the internet is WordPress sites, Yeah, yeah, which is, is completely crazy. So that's my grand dream with Dataset. If I can build a core engine for the sort of data exploration and, and, and publishing, and then 10,000 plugins that let it do solve any problem in data analysis or visualization, that would be incredible, right? Mm -hmm. you, you want to do... a a heat map of, of state of us states use data set and use the us state heat map plugin that sort of thing so yeah so um as a as a result though i think data set is my 10 is my minimum of 10 year project right in my career i've had a lot of projects I and mean, i've never before had a project where i could see myself still working on it in 10 years time like and being right. excited about it data set is that i can't see myself getting bored of this because i can always find a new interesting aspect of the world that i can be writing plugins and tools around this for um, yeah. but the challenge then is if i want to work on data set for the next decade plus it needs to be sustainable right i can't right. just do this out of my own pocket forever yeah, um, yeah and furthermore i'd like to pay people to work on it with me you know mm -hmm. right now it's me i've got a bunch of like con contributors who kick in every now and then but really it's it's mostly a solo effort yeah that was my next question was you know how do you think you can monetize this so it's Right. Yeah, a little more sustainable. So I'm, I've, I've formed an LLC and the first product I want to put out is I want to do the, the hosted software as a service version. You know, the charge company is 50 bucks a month to, to run this for them because mm. it's pretty tried and tested. You know, there are, it's <clears throat> because it's pretty tried and tested. There are definitely, sorry, can you still hear me? I just yeah. dropped an earphone. Yep. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, um, the software as a service thing, because it's tried and tested lots of, open source projects have pulled this off successfully. Mm -hmm. Once you've got like paying customers using your software, it helps solve the prioritization problem because they'll be like, I need it to do this. And you're like, okay, well, yeah. that's clearly the thing that I should work on next. Um, but I think there are, there are opportunities beyond that one. That's just the most sensible sort of starting point, I think, for commercializing this. I'm not opposed to raising money for a, to do a startup thing later, but I also know that, because I've raised money in the past. Sure. And, it's easier to raise money on good terms if you don't need the money, right? If, if, right, if you're right. already revenue positive and you've proven a business model and you've hit product market fit, you can yeah. raise money to accelerate that at much better terms than if you're still in the, still in I the... don't know if this is going to work or not. Right, the feel yeah. it out stage, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Huh. Yeah, that, that sounds like a really awesome project. I was just it's uh, fun. It's... poking over the website a little bit. One of the biggest problems I have with it actually is um, is explaining what it is. You know, mm -hmm. like the I need that elevator pitch. What's the fifteen second version of yeah. what dataset is? And I think the reason it's so hard is that it's a lot of different things. It can solve a huge number of different problems. Kind of like um like Microsoft Excel. I wonder what the elevator pitch for mm -hmm. that was because that is a that tool kind of you can apply it to. Almost how would you how would you explain Excel in fifteen seconds? I have to. I have yeah. to look into that. I don't even know. Like, I haven't, but right. yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like that's, uh, finding that elevator pitch is kind of, kind of key. Um, yeah. finding a way to describe it to somebody. So they're like, oh yeah, that, that makes total sense. I would use that. And um, it turns out the project is five years old on November the 15th. So hmm. I've been five years and I still haven't solved the elevator pitch <laughs> problem, which is, is not a good sign. I really need to get on top of that. But have you, have you actually given it any thought or are you, or you just <laughs> so like, much thought yes yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like you're just so busy writing stuff <laughs> well that's that's the other interesting thing Which right is, awesome. is that 
Um, there's building, you can, if you spend all of your time building the software and mm -hmm. none of your time marketing or explaining the software, yeah. what are you doing, right? right? There's no point in building it if people don't understand it and can't use it. Can't use um, it. But the flip side is if you, you, you need to spend the time building it. So something I'm experimenting with right now is um, this idea of doing a week of one and then a week of the other. So you have a week of building. Mm -hmm. And then you do a week of marketing, effectively, mm -hmm. and then a week of building, and then a week of marketing. And you just keep repeating that forever. Um, this is specifically a trick for solo founders, you know, where you've got one person trying to wear lots of different hats. Because yeah. I find anytime I'm building software, I feel guilty that I'm not out there explaining it to people. Sure. And anytime I'm, like, marketing it, I feel guilty that I'm not building it. That you're not building it. So it feels it. like yeah. saying, designating weeks, I can think, okay, I've had a great idea for a feature it's marketing week, I'll build that on Monday, you know, or, <laughs> oh, here's a great idea for a blog post or tutorial. It's building week, I'll, I'll work on that next week. I'm, I'm hopeful that that's going to help me sort of get out of that sort of guilt cycle in terms of what I should be working on next. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny that you, you talk about doing one and then the other that I was, you know, I'm, I'm in this coding boot camp and that that's kind of my, uh, my mindset for doing stuff is you do a little reading, then you do a little coding. And you do a little reading, you know, just kind of back and forth. Um, right. But yeah, you, you feel guilty when when you're doing one over the other. Um, yeah, I could. I, Honestly, I could. guilt is the enemy of all projects. Mm -hmm. Like, um, like I said, I've got 185 projects going on. Yeah. And the, the, the thing that has hurt me with this in the past is you just feel guilty. Anytime you're working one of them, you feel guilty about ignoring the other 184. <laughs> and then... Um, the approach I've found that actually works for me on this is I now don't consider a project to be ready for anyone to, to, to look if it isn't documented and tested, right? It has to have automated tests and it has to have doc comprehensive documentation. And if you do that, I can abandon a project for six months. I can abandon it for two years and I don't feel guilty about it because it's at the very least, anyone who comes along will be able to use it and I will know that it works, right? I, right. I, I don't have that, that concept, like, does the thing even work? I don't know. I do know because I've got tests for it. Mm -hmm. um, I gave a talk at DjangoCon last week that was just basically about this, about how do you, how do you as a single, as a solo developer, maintain a lot of projects? And the answer is it's tests and documentation, which is interesting because it seems mm. like that would slow you down, right? It seems yeah. like layering that on top of yourself saying, I have to write tests and documentation for everything I do. Right. Obviously, that's going to take longer and that should slow you down. I found the exact opposite. I found that because I'm doing that, I can work on all of these. Like, I can forget that a project exists. This has happened once or twice. And then <laughs> I remember it again and I go and look at it and I've got documentation that explains what it uh, how it works. And I've got some tests. I'm like, OK, I can I can pick up as if I was a stranger joining this project for the first time. Like that's, oh, yeah. that's really the trick here is that you have to, if you're going to work on so much different stuff, you have to assume that you will be the new maintainer who adopts the project from scratch in, in a year's time. Mm. And so if you put set things up such that that is possible, so you know, if, it, if it's, if it's well-documented, it's got good tests, then that works. And if you don't do that, then yeah, you come back to a project and it's like stumbling across some random open source thing that someone else has built without documentation and tests. And you realistically, you're not going to be able to engage with it. That makes so much sense. I've, I've often thought about, you know, like the little things I've built, like how do I, how do I come back and know what I'm doing? But you mm -hmm. may not. You, if, but if you document it, you can come back and... Right. And, and it's one of those things, it's hard the first time you do it. And after you've written a readme file for 185 projects, it's not hard anymore. You know, it's, it's also, repetition. it's incrementalism, right? Um, writing a test suite for something from scratch is hard. 
adding a single test that tests a single new feature that you just added when mm -hmm. you've got 50 existing tests to copy and paste from. That's, that's a lot easier. And so, yeah, that, that's, um, so the pitch for my talk I gave was here are techniques that you use on large software engineering teams. Like if you've got hundreds of engineers, you need good tests and good documentation. It turns out if you've got one engineer, the same tricks still work. Um, which is, I think, I think that's unintuitive. I wouldn't have expected that, mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's, it, it, it's the, the, the key to my productivity has been taking those larger engineering practices and, and scaling them down. Mm. Hmm. I think I will, uh, I'll spend some time trying to come up with a, uh, 15 second pitch for you for <laughs> that. That'd be amazing. I've, I've, I, <laughs> I've, I've, I've tried this. People have tried before and that what well, it's always a valuable exercise, yeah. um, but it's really interesting how varied they are. You know, they'll be like, wow, yeah. uh, somebody called it a no code tool for databases. And I'm like, oh. wow, I've never even thought of it in the node code category, but maybe it is mm -hmm. like, maybe, yeah. maybe I should be leaning in that direction. Um, I mean, that's, that's sort of what a CMS is anyway. You know, it's just a, it's kind of a no code or it should be, you know, as, as huh. code as, as possible. That's interesting. Yeah. WordPress is kind of a no code tool. Yeah. Isn't WordPress. Never really thought about that. Like anybody can pick up, you know, there's, there's obviously layers to WordPress and you can do other things and you can get into the code if you want. But most people that are using WordPress are just, you know, just firing it up and, um, using some pre, you know, made hosting or, or, uh, yeah. whatever. And, and just, yeah, just slapping together a site or, you know, um, huh. Not touching the code at all. I know the first few I did on WordPress were like that. I didn't touch any code. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, also WordPress is like for the business model that I'm exploring. Mm -hmm. WordPress is an open source thing, and they make the money of the hosted version, right? It's it's exactly. it's it's a classic. I'm also I'm I I love GitLab because GitLab mm -hmm. again GitLab. very very aggressively open source. Yeah. They've built a, they've got over a thousand employees, which they've built through through running the the paid version because it turns out. Most companies would much rather pay you to run it for them than, than than have to add that to their already creaking stack. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of extra work for sure. I didn't realize that GitLab was open source, but I haven't really. Yeah. Um. Oh, here's the craziest thing about GitLab is not only is is GitLab itself open source, but their employee handbook is open source and public, and mm. that means that they've got things like. GitLab have employees in like 40 different countries. Their yeah. HR handbook is online and you can see how they do payroll in 40 different countries and how they do benefits. Like it doesn't tell really? you how much people earn, but it tells you the mechanisms for how do you pay somebody in, I don't know, like Tunisia or something. Um, yeah. And they also, their sales handbook is online and it's got information about like how they, how they negotiate discounts and do strategic closes and stuff. And this is, solid gold right if you want to yeah, learn how that's... software sales works right if they, you want to learn how to run your it. own company i mean that's yeah that's that's kind of insane i guess that's one of the things also i like about um uh basecamp or i think they've gone uh -huh. back to their old name their employee handbook is wonderful there's a section the section in the basecamp employee handbook about how they work as a team mm -hmm. like and it, it's all about um like their big thing is, so you want to ship a feature, you shouldn't have to depend on another team for that feature. If you, you should be able to build the back end, deploy it, build the front end, build the mobile app piece, do the, do all of those pieces within your own team. Because the moment you're like delayed on, oh, the mobile team don't have time until next month, it seizes everything up. And I love that. I, 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 that's something I always aspire to. For, for my own company, I want to be in a position where teams are completely independent of other teams when it comes to shipping the thing that they're responsible for. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
So this uh, this painting, can you tell me a little bit about the painting, the dogs? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> That's a fun one. So, yeah, That's this awesome. is um, Barbara Streisand cloned her dog, right? <laughs> Barbara really? Streisand, back in 2018, I think, she yeah. cloned her dog. Oh because God. you can get this done now. There are companies that will, they will clone your dog for you. Really? Um, and there's, she, she wrote this... Um, there was a story in the New York Times about why she cloned her dog. And the story was accompanied by this photograph, which is a photograph of her. Th- you, always, you get two, right? When you, clone, when you clone a dog, they always get you at least two clones in case one of them doesn't work. Oh, really? So she's now got these two identical little white fluffy dogs. And in Ooh. this photograph, um, they're, they're, her two white fluffy dogs are in a stroller and now visiting the tombstone of the dog they were cloned from which mm. has like Sammy. So it's a tombstone with a little picture of a little carved like, engraving of a little white fluffy dog's face looking out at these two little white fluffy dogs in the stroller. It's like these dogs are visiting the grave of themselves. That oh is so, so dark and so weird. <laughs> also, the fact, just the fact that they're in a stroller is, is in itself entertaining. Yeah. Um, the, the, caption, the caption on this photograph was, two identical puffs of white fur gazing at the tombstone of the dog they are. Oh my and I just God. got That's... obsessed with this. Like, everything about this is so weird and science fiction and like dystopian that's Um, totally weird man and i'd always wanted to get do one of those so there are there's this little town in china that's responsible for 90 percent of the world's oil paintings right it's just full of oil painters oil painting artists and you can commission work from there there are lots of different um companies that you can use to commission a painting and i'd always wanted an oil painting commissioned in china i felt that would be a fun thing to have yeah they never had a sort of I'd never had a subject for one before. And then this photo came along. So I'm like, okay, this is it. I want an oil painting of Barbara Streisand's clone dogs visiting the tombstone <laughs> of the dogs that they are. Jesus. And so I used this, several, I think I used Insta painting, and it cost me $75. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, I coughed up the $75. And I. And then I basically forgot about it um, because it took took a little while. And then a few months later, this package shows up in the mail and it's my oil painting of Barbara Streisand's dogs. And it's really good. Like it's mm. better than the photograph. The composition is tighter. The dogs oh. have this look of sort of existential dread on their faces. Like everything <laughs> about it's perfect. Yeah. Um, it costs more funny. to get the thing framed than it did to get it painted. Poor um, dog. Yeah. But wow! Oh, so yeah, so that was that was that was fun. That was um, unrelated to anything else that I've ever done. But I, I figured it was a, it was a, it was a nice. It was almost a little piece of performance art. Commissioning the painting was itself a, a weird sort of twist on that. Oh yeah, for sure. That's that's really bizarre. Um, <laughs> uh, so so one thing I I noticed on your Twitter, um, you have a. Uh, a list of tiny museums. Is that right? Yes. So I live yes, in Arkansas, right? And we have uh-huh. a ton of these tiny little museums everywhere. Oh, fantastic. What's your favorite one? Or what's the weirdest one that you found? <sighs> Probably some sort of medical related. Uh-huh. Like the medical history or, ones. Are, yeah, uh, those, are, those are bizarre. Lot, yeah. Those are real bizarre. Um. The always... only one I've got listed in Arkansas, I want to see the, um, oh, what is it? There's, 
the Walmart Museum is in Arkansas. That's awesome. I've been there. That's that's. Fantastic. I want to go and see that one. Yeah, yeah. That, that's really cool. And it's not it's not huge, you know. I mean, it's that's it's, better, uh, right? The, the smaller yeah. they are, the better they are. It's, yeah. Um, it's well, so, actually at the. Is it the original Five and Dime location? It looks like it. Yeah, I'm I think just it is. I think it, it's been a while oh. since I've been there, but yeah. Um, oh, that is awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then they've got like a, like a, uh, uh, one of those old ice cream kind of. Oh, um, wonderful! Things inside. Yes, yeah, it's, it's awesome. So yeah, this is a, it's a hobby I picked up a few years ago when I realized that, um, like you said, everywhere has tiny museums, like mm-hmm. any town you go to anywhere in the world, if you search Google Maps for museum and then scroll past the big ones, yeah. then you'll get to the pencil museum or right. the Bigfoot discovery museum or all of these different things. And when they're that small, it doesn't matter what they're about, right? The fact yeah. that the museum exists is the thing that's interesting. And if it's small enough, if you go, the chances are the person who's running it is the person who set it up. So now you're having a conversation with the person who founded the Bigfoot Discovery Museum. He's right. a very interesting <laughs> fellow, by the way. Yeah. Um, and so, so the topic doesn't matter, right? But the joy is in, it's that joy of somebody else's enthusiasm for something. If they're excited enough about it to build a freaking museum, right. then you, you want some of that energy. And so I started like hunting these things down. And then I built a website a few years ago called niche-museums.com. Uh-huh. And it's basically... When I go to one of these tiny museums, I take some photos and I write and then I write it up on my website and add it to the map. And I've got just over 100 listed now that I've been to. And I've got a private Google map with another 1,200 that I want to go to. So this hobby will last me a lifetime. You know, this is this is I'm never going to run out. Right. A, a good so tip for these things, though, is if you if you spot one, you have to go straight away because they are not long for this world. Like uh. the Pez, the, the Burlingame Museum of Pez Memorabilia, like the Pez Dispenser Museum, it's gone. It closed down. They, they oh, don't have no. unlimited funds. You know, the sure. Metropolitan Museum of Art will be around for, for the rest of time. But, uh, but these, these various tiny museums are not necessarily going to stick it out. Maybe so we, you, you have to get in there and visit them. Maybe we need some sort of like uh, crowdsourcing system for supporting tiny museums. Oh, interesting. I mean... Uh, my my main thing is I do, I'm just like just go visit these places like yeah, your yeah. your ten bucks entry fee might be that might be their revenue for the day yeah yeah for sure um, it's gotta but be it's so like rewarding that. and then the the best category it turns out it's a private museum that's in somebody's home where you have to book an appointment to go and see it because. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, you don't get much more personal and, and tiny than those. And there's quite a lot of those around, but you have to almost like wait for word of mouth to, to, to hear about those. Um, right. And so, so I've, I've managed to, to track down a few, a few of those ones. There's actually, um, there was one I just, one of the most recent ones I listed on my website is a museum of, um, the Mendenhall Museum of Gasoline Pumps and Petroliana. And Petroliana, I think it's a word they invented to mean like memorabilia involving the petrol industry. Um, Yeah, yeah. That sounds right. It's amazing. It's it's this museum of petrol pumps. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that petrol pumps from the 1950s and 60s and 70s are like these gorgeous things with these amazing like cast iron signs on them and all of that stuff. Um, And yeah, this family have been collecting them since 1978. Mm. And now their home is above this complex full of like classic cars and petrol pumps and old advertising signs and so forth and oh, yeah wow. if you book an appointment you can you can go and visit and they'll show you around and it's it's amazing it's it's like the, the perfect example of a tiny museum this one's in 
Welton, California, so it's just north of San Luis Obispo. And yeah, oh. it's, it's 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 an absolute treat. There's this uh, little town called Hardy, Arkansas, that has a um it has a main street section but it has uh-huh. all the original buildings from the 1800s um oh awesome i love that kind of thing yeah and then there's a a, a rail i think it was a, i think it's a train station it's an old train station um that's been you know upkept and things like that and it's a museum and it's got a lot like a lot of like old um uh train related stuff inside of it so that might be i I, love something i love train museums generally um i love model railways are always fun Uh um, yeah those are dotted around in all sorts of different places one of the Mm -hmm. problems with san francisco is because it's so expensive it's very hard to afford to run a weird little museum in san francisco oh so you do you do have to travel a little bit further afield to find those like the whole bay area is not a great place for your obscure little thing that doesn't make any money yeah for your little hobby that doesn't do anything like you can't afford right. hobbies in san francisco <laughs> <laughs> pretty much not no uh that, that's kind of too bad because i bet they have yeah. a lot of you know a lot of history there and oh, totally. a lot of yeah. small places that you know could be preserved or or shared um is there is there anything else in this wonderful list of stuff that you've done over the last 20 years or so that, uh, that you want to cover. So there is one thing, there's a technique that I'd like to promote. Um, Mm -hmm. so when you work for newspaper, when you do data journalism, there's a lot of scraping of data, right? You need to scrape various, there's all sorts of places where the data's there, but it's locked up in some terrible like county court website or something. And you need to, to get it back out. Um, And there's a technique that I've been promoting for scraping, which I call, I call it git scraping. Um, I, I, I find that there's all sorts of things where nobody's ever bothered to give them a name. And once you give it a name, it's easier for people to have conversations about it. So the idea with git scraping is you run a scraper, which scrapes to a git repository and then commits each change. And the reason this is interesting is it turns out there are lots of sources of information online where they don't have the older versions of things. They Mm -hmm. just sort of publish the current snapshot of stuff. And if you scrape that and record it in git, you get to record all of the changes that are made to that. And it turns out the news isn't the the, the interesting bit, isn't the data. It's how the data has changed over time. So a really great Mm -hmm. example of this is um, power outage maps, right? Every power company has a map somewhere that says, here are our current outages. You go to PG&E's outage map, whatever, and it shows you everywhere where the power is out at the moment. Yeah. But they don't let you see historic outages. Like, that, that's not, they're, they're trying to solve your, your current problem. If you scrape those maps, and these maps all tend to have a JSON feed somewhere, so you can dig around, find the JSON that feeds the map. You can scrape that JSON, and then if you scrape that, like, once an hour over the course of a period of time, you end up with a history of outages of that company and the data you've got is kind of like nobody else has that the power company presumably has it but nobody else has got it um but you and you can run these on github and you can do it using github actions because github actions can be scheduled you can say run this action every hour commit to this repository and if it's if it's a public repository it doesn't cost you any money right github actions are free for public repos so i've been building these repos like a pg&e the power company in california 
I, um, I started running one of these a few years ago, just capturing snapshots of the outage map um, and then totally ignored it for a while. And then a couple of years ago, PG&E had scheduled, they had outages across the whole state that had been scheduled in advance over um, all sorts of like complicated political reasons. But I had these. I, I was capturing the data so I could do things like generate an animated map of California showing the power going out over time and then coming back on again. Um, yeah. Because I'd been collecting all of this data. And so I've been, I called this Git scraping. I wrote a bunch of tutorials about how to do it. And I also created a topic on GitHub. If you go to github.com slash topics slash git hyphen scraping, okay. you can see that there are now 310 repositories that do this. And I'm responsible for a tiny number of these, but there are a whole bunch of people who are doing this now. And if you sort by recently updated, you can see that 30 seconds ago, somebody tracked events on 511.org. Um, one minute ago, Entergy outages were tracked. Um, the BBC, the White House press release feed updated two minutes ago. Huh. So you've got all of these scrapers hitting all of these different things and recording this history of what changed. Now, and, can, can that be used for anything? As, I mean, yeah, basically, you can, there's, there's, especially if you do it privately, nobody's even going to know that you're doing it. So I've got a few sure. private repos that I'm scraping things into as well. Um, and it's crazy powerful. Like, um, it's, it's a very, very inexpensive thing to do. And it gives you this incredible sort of view onto how the world is changing. Um, one of the other ones I run is the city of San Francisco have an open data portal. And on that portal, they publish a CSV file of every tree in San Francisco that's looked after by the Department of Public Works. So they have oh. 195,000 trees in this file. And each tree has a latitude and longitude, when it was planted, who looks after it, what species of tree it is, right? Mm. But here's the crazy thing. They update that file every working day. Wow. Like, I noticed this. I, I went to their website one day and it said last updated October, whatever. And I was like, hang on, that's, that's yesterday. And it turns <laughs> out, yeah, somebody in City Hall is updating this tree with like 20, this, this file with like, here are the trees that were changed today. So I've been scraping it. So I've spent the last two years, three years now, I've been scraping this file into a Git repository and committing the diffs, which means I've now got a history of how the trees in San Francisco have changed over time. And I've done nothing with this, right? It's sat there. I've not done any analysis, but potentially you could say, okay, rich neighborhoods versus poor neighborhoods. Are they getting more tree activity from the government? Um, yeah. Which species of tree lasts the longest? There's so, there are stories in this data. This is sort of the, the, the end goal with the, stuff, the mm. software I'm building. I want to help people tell the stories. I want to build software so a journalist who isn't necessarily a computer programmer can dive into this history of trees in San Francisco and figure out what's been going on and find those stories. And yeah, it's it's really cool. So I would encourage anyone who's anyone who has a, a, a sort of wants to be civically engaged, mm -hmm. finding interesting things to scrape is is a very very fun way of telling stories about the world. I kind of want to I kind of want to try this. Um, what was that? What was that uh, link again? Um, so uh, GitHub.com/topics/git-scraping. Um, but also, if you search for Git scraping, um, just G-I-T scraping. Um, yeah, uh, my, my, I've got an article that comes up to, uh, on my blog, which is part of a whole series of posts where I've talked about techniques and tools and all sorts of stuff. I did a project just um, just just last week where I was scraping the Google Maps traffic directions um, between oh. my little town and the town eight minutes away because there was a pumpkin festival and the traffic was getting bad. 
And yeah. so Google will give you the estimate as in the JSON it says estimated 15 minutes driving time. So I scrape that for a weekend and plot it on the map. And now I've got a map showing exactly how the pumpkin festival affected our local driving times. Um, <laughs> and it took like 15 minutes to get the scraper set up and then maybe an hour of tinkering around with graphs at the end of the weekend. So it's, it's, it's a really fun technique. You can, you can do all sorts of fun, tiny little data projects with it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I would, I would definitely like to try that out. That's pretty cool. Well, um, I think we're just about at the end of our time. Um, is there anything you want to shout out or, or plug before we go? Um, I'm just thinking. Um, or if there's anything else you want to talk about, that's fine too. Trying to pick a good plug. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think my, 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 my main plug is I'd love it for more people to check out this uh, data set project I've been working on for, for almost five years. Like mm -hmm. I said, the, the fifth birthday is, is November the 15th. Um, and so yeah, if you go to data set, that's D-A-T-A-S-E-T-T-E, -T -T -E, like the word cassette, but with mm -hmm. data instead of CAS. Um, Dataset.io is the main website for that project. Um, and that will link through to the <laughs> over 100 other related projects for this stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm always, super, especially if you try this thing out, yeah. I'm always keen on, on, on hearing from people, especially if it didn't work. You know, if you tried it and you didn't understand it or mm -hmm. it wasn't useful or it would be more useful if it could do that, just do this one more thing. That's the kind of stuff I want to hear about. I've got a, a Discord channel for it that you can join. I also um, I, I have an office hours program. So on Fridays, you can book a 25 minute conversation with me over video and we can talk about projects and um, and. and all sorts of different topics. Um, oh, so cool. yeah, so I'm always keen on always keen on hearing from people who want to try out some of my stuff. Awesome, great. I will. Uh, I'll definitely drop these links in the show notes. Um, well, thanks for coming on, Simon. I really appreciate you taking your time out. And oh, no, this is this has been really fun. This is this is a really fun conversation. <laughs> yeah, this has been a blast for me, for sure. But all right, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you. You've been listening to episode 13 of the Citizen Coder Podcast. If you'd like to connect with Simon, you can find him on Twitter. Links to his projects and other sites are also in the show notes. If you like what I'm doing and you want to sponsor the show, you can reach out to me at info at citizencodercast.com or message me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening, and as always, I'll see you next time.